Hello, I'm Simon Morris, and today we preview the 2018 New Zealand International Film Festival. <laughs> we all love each other, don't we? Am I right? Let me hear you say yeah on it! Donald Trump. Если ты смотришь это видео, я хочу тебя поздравить с победой. Записываю песню. She said more than once, my beauty is my curse. And by that she meant people never got past her face. I want to take your picture. It's that time of the year when we stop worrying about trends and franchises, bankable stars and state-of-the-art gimmickry. For a few glorious weeks, we're encouraged to take a risk or two to assess the world's award winners, to get angry, puzzled, surprised and delighted. It's the 2018 New Zealand International Film Festival and there's nothing like it for the rest of the year. I'm joined by festival director Bill Gosden, who's celebrating an impressive anniversary this year. 50 years since the very first film festival festival in Auckland. Hi Bill and congratulations I yeah, suppose. Thank you. It's not my 50th year with the festival but it's damn close actually. <laughs> yeah we're very excited about turning 50. It's been an occasion for a little bit of retrospection of course and the one thing you can't ignore at such a moment is the number of extraordinary changes that the festival has gone through, how much the context of the festival has changed but how our basic principles are still pretty much the same. When you started, the difference between mainstream and artistic was a lot more obvious, wasn't it? Um, I guess it was in the in that the film festival, in the very early film festivals, were almost entirely foreign language films. But when you think about what was going on in the cinema in the 60s and 70s, there were a lot of pretty exciting films showing in mainstream cinemas. And in fact, the effect, like a lot of artistic successes, is usually felt... 20 years, 30 years down the track sometimes. Yeah, it's absolutely cumulative, I think. When you look at the first Auckland Film Festival program, it's incredibly serious. But it's also incredibly impressive how many of the films that were there are films that people still watch today. I noticed that uh, Auckland is going to benefit from uh, this anniversary because you, uh, your retro section is rather extended. You're just picking not your <laughs> usual sort of mainstream films that were sort of brought back after 50 years, but a lot of the hits of those festivals. Well, yes, it's a mixture of hits and curiosities, really. The guiding principle was not to go for a best of. That would have been impossible. Obviously, it was important that we find films that were available in close to mint condition. Uh, we have a beautiful 35mm print of Zhang Yimou's Raise the Red Lantern oh, well. from the Academy Archive. That's the archive of all Oscar-nominated films. Um, you so, have uh, Wings of Desire, which I think probably would have talked itself in anyway, wouldn't yeah, it? Yeah, Wings of Desire in a stunning 4K restoration, and that's one that we're going to share with the entire country. The interesting thing about that is that it's much easier now to get something that looks like the cinematographer had in mind than at the time because the film was shot in black and white but actually creating black and white prints back in the late 80s was quite challenging. Now they can work with the original material and the 4K digital 
Wings of Desire is absolutely breathtaking. Well, one thing that you'll notice about the modern film festivals, of course, is how much bigger they are. I mean, you claim that it's not quite as big as it was last <laughs> yeah, it's time. it's marginally smaller than last year's programme. <laughs> so how many films are we talking about this I year? Have, I think it's around about 170. It depends how you count them. We're treating the Animation Now programme in Auckland as a separate little festival in its own right, but... Um, There are just as many screenings. We're using up just as many screening slots, which means that there are more opportunities to see quite a few of the films than there might have been otherwise. Well, let's have a look at some of this year's riches. And I see that you've got just about all the big winners at the major festivals, Berlin, Sundance, Venice, and most of all, Cannes. Cannes's been extraordinary this year. I mean, it's always a a terrible (laughs) last-minute panic. Mm. Um, We have Sandra Reid, our programmer, mostly going to competition films, but seeing films in some other sections of the program too and coming back to us uh, pretty quickly telling us which ones she thinks we should definitely be targeting and then target them is what we do. I'm delighted with the success rate this year and with just how overwhelmingly strong the films are and what an important influence they've had on the shape of the overall program, yielding films in absolutely key positions, the film that will open the festival in Auckland and Wellington, uh, Birds of Passage opened the director's fortnight section at Cannes. It's an extraordinary film. It's a Colombian film by Ciro Guerra, whose films we've screened before. This film is about an indigenous culture that thinks it can bend its traditional codes of honour to encompass the drug trade. And watching that unfold is quite astounding. The code of warning and communication that was used in the traditional clan struggles Mm. and warfare makes a very strange bedfellow with criminal activity. It looks fascinating. I mean, the the obvious winners at Cannes were um, Shoplifters, which is a Japanese film. Wonderful film by Koreeda, whose films we've We've screened consistently right from the very start with Mabaroshi. Shoplifters is a wonderful film about a makeshift family existing on the fringes of society. The film invites the audience really to question the nature of what is holding this makeshift family together. So you watch the film in a state of suspense, knowing that what they're doing is not entirely legal. I mean, they're they're shoplifters after all, but um, a little girl that drifts into their family, um, you soon realise is the subject of a national search on television, and yet it's very clear in the film that this girl's never been happier than she is living with these people. So the moral tension runs right through the, the film, and Coriator's observation of the relationships amongst these people is incredibly moving. It's quite a wonderful film. One of the notable winners at Cannes was a film called Girl, which won an award for, I think, Best First Film. But it's basically very much a part of the LGBT community, which features very heavily this year, I think. Yeah, certainly it's a huge year for lesbians on screen. Mm. Um, It's quite overwhelming, really, um, in terms of previous festivals. I know last year that gay men were extremely well represented at the festival. It's really not the case this year. Well, in the Um, case of Girl, this is a trans young woman who's transitioning. And is determined to be a ballerina. So (laughs) kind of going for the acme of a certain kind of female code. 
I haven't seen the film myself. It was one of the films Sandra most loved in um, Cannes, and I'm looking forward to it enormously. The young actor is apparently quite extraordinary in the film and won the acting award. You talked about the lesbian presence in films this year, and a lot of those feature in some of the other award winners. Uh, One that I'm particularly interested in is a film called The Misdirection of Cameron Post, largely because it's got Chloe Grace Moretz in it, who I think is fantastic. Yeah, she's, she's, she's really touching in this film. She plays... A young woman who's discovered in the back seat of a car with her girlfriend um, by the family who are fundamentalist Christians and they send her mm. off to a conversion camp. And it's not played for laughs, really. I mean, there, there are a couple of subversive kids in the camp she meets who are funny, but the situation she faces is quite a serious one and the, and the, the film considers it in a very even-handed way, actually. It doesn't turn the um, counsellors into Mm. villains. They're all well-meaning people with secrets of their own, as you can imagine. Looking at some of the other, if you like, lesbian highlights, there's uh, The Heiresses, which did extremely well at Berlin. Yes, I'm very glad you landed on that film because it's also just won the big prize at Sydney. But this is a film about an older couple, a couple of women who've been together for 30 years. They have lived rather well. When one of them is suddenly uh, hauled off to prison for her financial activities, um, she's clearly been keeping the two of them on the style to which they've become accustomed. And this sort of huge crack in the edifice definitely lets some light in and you see the two women rediscover themselves in the process of this separation. The film's also a very precise description of a certain class in Paraguay, declining into obsolescence. But looking at other uh, lesbian highlights, Disobedience stars Rachel's Vice and Rachel McAdams, but also Rafiki, which is uh, set in Africa. Yeah, it's a Kenyan film, which is about a young couple uh, attempting to come out. In Kenya, uh, homosexuality is illegal, as in most of Africa. And uh, the film itself is banned in Kenya, but it was celebrated in Cannes, another film I'm looking forward to seeing from the Cannes selection. I noticed that another of the elements in Rafiki is another of the sort of little minor trends in this year's show, which is surfing and skating. The girl in uh, Rafiki is a very keen skateboarder. There's also Skate Kitchen, Mind the Gap, which is a self-portrait of a skater, United Skates, and a film called Breath, which I'm hearing quite a lot about. Yes, Breath is a wonderful film directed by Simon Barker, the actor. He's gone back to Australia from Hollywood to direct this film based on the Tim Winton short novel, and he's done a beautiful job. The two young boys in the, who are at the centre of the film were both non-actors who were competitive surfers, so he didn't have to teach his actors to surf, he had to teach his surfers to act, <laughs> and they do a beautiful job. It's a typical, in many ways, Tim Winton coming-of-age story, but stunningly well done. I see that there's a lot of women in front of and behind the camera this year. I mean, was that deliberate or was that just how it panned out? Well, the films are all so good, so I guess it's how it panned out. I mean, we're all hyper-aware of the issues surrounding women getting to make movies, but there are so many stunning films that are made by women. It's mm. um, There's no special consideration involved in programming them in the film festival. It's just a complete pleasure to have them and very exciting too for us that 
Deborah Granick, who directed Leave No Trace and is probably best known for Winter's Bone, is going to be joining us for the screenings in Auckland and Wellington. As always, there's plenty from the Middle East, and I like the look of Beirut. Well, it's probably the most conventional of the films. It's an extremely entertaining John le Carré-type movie with... Mm. Uh, the wonderful John Hamm in the lead role. It's a kind of extension of Mr. Draper, I guess. But yeah, a very entertaining film. The films that are actually come out of the Middle East take a rather different approach to the local politics. Well, the Gaza Strip, as always, is going to feature pretty much every year. Yeah, the film that's from the Gaza Strip is a documentary that um, caused a lot of attention in Cannes. It's called Sanumi Road. And it was filmed over a period of years on the Gaza Strip with a small farming community who were pretty much destroyed by an IDF raid in, I think, 2009. And the film is based on IDF's um, own internal inquiries as much as it is on the experience of the people in the village. It's a pretty devastating film that certainly takes you behind the headlines. One thing I love about this year's festival is that you've given fake news its own section. Fake news is just one of those really distressing things as far as documentary makers, I'm sure. Yeah, I've got a horrible feeling that some people will get to the program and see the fake news spread and just move right on. (laughs) But it would be a mistake. The hero film in that section is definitely um, Sergei Luznitz's Donbass. He's a Ukrainian filmmaker whose work we've been screening for years. Anybody who saw his film of A Gentle Creature last year won't have forgotten it. And this is a film that's a kind of black comedy about the creation of war through fake, through propaganda, basically. And it's very much... On the ground, it's very disturbing and bleakly funny. But he's such a great filmmaker. His films are always utterly compelling. And we've surrounded that with some documentaries. The one that might actually make people laugh is Our New President, the film which cuts together Russian television coverage of Trump's campaign. There is no more ironic name than Our New President, a Russian film about Donald Trump. The one that I'm interested in, actually, though, I mean, whether anyone's going to be able to get a chance to see all 170 films apart from you, Bill, is another matter. Not even me. There's some of those films (laughs) I won't be seeing. (laughs) But the one I was interested in was The Cleaner, which is the group of people whose job it is to clean up Facebook. Yeah, yeah, that's that's interesting because it's uh, encounters with people who have actually done that job. It's a very distressing job. You know, our own film censors have a lot of counselling services and support available Mm. to them. These people don't. They're employed by corporates to just tick boxes, follow certain rules. That ties Um, in, in a way, with another film that you've got in here called Censored, which looks really interesting. Censored is a film made by a young Australian woman who had access, and I think any, I think anybody in Australia does for research purposes, have access to everything that was cut by the Australian film censors from films between 1958 and 1971. I believe that she went in with a certain preset idea of what the film was going to be and started to change her mind after a bit. Yeah, I think it stopped being a fun project after a while, understandably, because a lot of the material that was cut from those films was quite unpleasant. Mm. But it's also quite funny that there's a big section out of Penny Baker's Don't Look Now that was cut where there's drunkenness on display and um, Bob uses the F word. And the whole the monologue that's the absolute heart 
of Bergman's personas completely <laughs> cut out of the film industry. Random quality to some of these yeah. things. We should look at uh, the New Zealand films, and I noticed that with very few exceptions, they're all documentaries, and interesting documentaries at that matter too. Absolutely. The one that we've announced quite long ago and which we're very excited about is Pietra Brick Kelly's Yellow is Forbidden, her a portrait of Guo Pei, the Chinese designer most well-known in the West, still probably for that amazing omelette dress that Rahana wore to the Met Ball, uh, what, three years ago now. Like all the fashion films on the program this year, it's about more than fashion, and Yellow is Forbidden is a really interesting glimpse into the Chinese 1% and into a really explicit hunger for imperial grandeur, which I think is a disease afflicting a lot of the world at the moment. But it's very specific in the film. And the fact is that as appalling as the idea of a dress that takes 16 people to carry it onto the red carpet may Mm. be, we're all a bit enthralled by that stuff. The other New Zealand uh, documentaries are, unsurprisingly, this year very women uh, centred. There's a film called Celia uh, by a longtime TV journalist Amanda Miller. Yes, and a longtime friend of Celia Lashley, the great social campaigner, probably best known for her work with boys um, through the success of the book she wrote on the subject. Mm. But somebody who was deeply, deeply committed to taking care of women, particularly women in prisons, and who saw the mother as the key figure Mm. in any social intervention that was required. She was a thorn in the side of many bureaucrats. She's remarkably forceful in the wonderful archive footage that Amanda has accumulated over the years. Amanda's long been filming Celia And the heart of the film is the interview she made in the last few days of Celia's life. I have to say that we do love strong New Zealand women in in the festival. We we also love Paul Callaghan, and he's he's, um, the portrait that Shirley Horrocks has made as a film that's uh, highly recommended. I'm interested in the fact that you've got a film called The Heart Dances, which is trying to get the piano into a ballet. We have a film about Merita Mita by her son, which looks really good. Yeah, it's terrific. It's very moving because um, Hippie came along quite late in Merita's life and career, and he's become a film archivist, and you can't help wondering if part of that was so that he could learn more about his mother and make sure. this film. I mean, she died horribly suddenly and early before she could tell him all these things. In the film he's made, it's a very moving portrait of a impressive and challenging woman. I mean, she's still sure. challenging today. No, she was a tough cookie. You mentioned Deborah Granick, whose uh, film Leave No Trace famously stars a New Zealand actress. This yes, is... Thomason Harcourt uh, Mackenzie. There's big write-ups about her at the moment. Yeah, for good reason. She's uh, terrific in this film and she's already in demand. We don't know that she's even going to be available to attend our screenings. There are always some baby boomer icons. I think of Nico from Velvet Underground, and there's a, a rather touching documentary about her later life. It's not a documentary, it's a drama. Wow. And I haven't seen it, I believe. The actress... Um, who plays her, does a very persuasive job. I would have said Nico was inimitable, but let's find out. You have uh, Vivian Westwood. There's a sort of a gender battle between The King, which is a tour of Elvis's car, versus I Used to Be Normal, which is an unashamed enthusiasm for boy bands. Would you like to address either of those, Bill? (laughs) Yeah, well, The King is more my territory, I have to say. 
The boy band film is extremely entertaining, though, and it deals with... We boomers are well represented in um, mm. I Used to Be Normal because one of the women is a diehard Beatle fan. We forget that the Beatles started out as a boy band. They really were. Well, yes, and after the Beatles, uh, everybody else wanted to do the same thing, didn't yeah, they? Yeah, they did. <laughs> but this film delves into pop fandom, dealing with some quite extreme fans, but very sympathetic to the way that young women might find some sense of self through this devotion. The film's quite funny about how much they have to fight for it sometimes, particularly in the case of a couple of young immigrant girls in the US with their parents who are not at all impressed by this devotion to uh, young men in um, tight trousers and T-shirts. I have to say that when I read about it, I started out sneering, but I'm starting to think that there may be something behind it. You should check it out just to find out what it is that motivates these people. (laughs) Broaden your mind. Absolutely. Um, The King, uh, the other film you mentioned, is a film by Eugene Jarecki, who's, I think, a stunningly intelligent and inventive documentary filmmaker whose subject is always America, one way or another. Mm. And in this film, he has somehow landed a Rolls-Royce, a very un-American car for Elvis to have owned. He equips it with sound recording gear and drives across America, visiting various Elvis shrines and picking up a wonderful array of musicians and celebrities along the way, discussing how America is now in its kind of fat Elvis phase. It's a very thoughtful and provocative film. It's also full of great music, uh, a wonderful road movie. That is such a film festival film, Bill, if you don't mind me putting it, because it's one of those sort of things where no committee was involved in putting that together. Somebody just said, I know exactly what we're going to do. Let's yeah, go and do somebody it. with a considerable amount of money and a very fertile imagination. It can be a good combination. There are a couple of films about film which are are always favourites as far as the audience are concerned, but the most famous one I think out of these, the one that there's been the biggest buzz about, is a film called Bombshell. And this is a film star called Haley Lamar, who turned out to have hidden depths. Yes, she was um, a mechanical scientist. She worked on torpedo interception technologies during the Second World War while gracing the screen. While being a film star. As as Delilah. And being mocked, really, for her beauty. She was somebody who was never considered a particularly talented actress, but incredibly easy on the eye. She had a terrible time in many ways. She was hounded by the media. And sadly, she got very involved in um, plastic surgery late in her life. Um, There's a whole generation of people who remember her for that. And when actually she had this incredibly vital life in other areas. Her whole career is fascinating in terms of a constant self-reinvention. I mean, slightly less complicated, though his his work was more complex, was Stanley Kubrick. And there's a film about him as well called Film Worker. Yeah, the film is about um, Leon Vitale, who was his right-hand man and really 24-7 available to Kubrick, somebody who was completely obsessed with Kubrick, but somebody who was also enormously capable and participated quite crucially in the casting of The Shining, for example. Oh, okay. But also was the master of print quality control whenever a new print of one of Kubrick's films went out into the cinemas. He had to check it. He 
did a lot of work coaching actors. He was originally an actor. He appears in Barry Lyndon. It's a film about a kind of person I think you find quite often in the film industry, actually, people whose lives are completely subsumed by serving... A monster, <laughs> in some respects. Yeah. I don't know. I was reminded, actually, of um, James Brown and the fact that James Brown had a backing vocalist who was there for his entire yeah, that's life. Right. The man who um, took the cape off and on. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> well, clearly, Bill, as always, we've barely scraped the surface. I know that um, in addition to the films that we've talked about, there are so many more. There are family movies. There's an animation section, which gets its own section this year, the incredibly strange section of Antibs. But as always, I always like to end with, you know, a request for which do you reckon? I have two. One of them is Monterey Pop, which is one of the retro sections and is one of the greatest rock docos ever. It is. It's wonderful. And apart from anything else, just when it came out, because all of a sudden, white America was given a bit of a surprise. Bit of a shock and a bit of a surprise. They got Hendrix, they got The Who, and they got Otis Redding. Yes, the Mamas and the Papas and Simon and Garfunkel were supposed to be the headline acts. <laughs> Didn't get a look in. The other one that I absolutely loved, I mean, I've seen a bit of it, and then I had to sort of stop myself because, you know, I want to see that when I'm not rushing, and that's a film called The Guilty. Oh, uh, yeah, that's a film that shows what you can do with a great script, a great actor, and not a great deal else, really. I guess a camera that knows where to go. The whole film is set in the phone room of a police station and a crime unfolds. You feel as though you're watching it, but actually you're only hearing it while this cop who's in disgrace and needs to rehabilitate himself. Classic kind of thriller situation, of course. Well, those are my two, I think. So, Bill, do you have do you have a choice? Well, I have about a dozen. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there's so many films there that I'm keen to draw people's attention to. The Korean film Burning is one I haven't seen myself, but absolutely everybody who sees that film says it's quite wonderful and unlike anything they've seen before. It got all the best reviews it can without getting any of the big awards, which is exactly what happened to Tony Erdman two years ago. I've been persuaded by everyone who's seen it not to watch Burning until I can see it on a giant screen, so that's where it will be. I think there's a film that people are absolutely going to love from Iceland called Woman at War, which is about a middle-aged woman who uses her invisibility as a middle-aged woman to wage war against pylons, basically. <laughs> she, uh, she surreptitiously heads out and blows up pylons to prevent pollution in Iceland. The film's very funny, but it's also quite timely and smart about the kind of response that's likely to occur when you behave that way. The music section is um, fantastic this year. We've already mentioned Monterey Pop. The Chili Gonzalez movie is one of the funniest things I've seen all year. He's such a prankster. If you've not heard of him, the best way to find out about him is see this movie. The Russian film Leto, which is about a band in the 1980s, is a great music film, I think, a film... I would recommend it without hesitation to any musicians I know because I think it gets something right about being in a band and about musicianship. And it's in this extraordinary setting of the Soviet era where official performances take place in halls where everybody has to sit still. If anybody moves from the seat, the monitors come along and pat them on the shoulder. The bands have to submit all their lyrics to the censors which is a process they manage with 
amazing um, aplomb and bullshit. You see them charming these middle-aged women with their boyish good looks and getting away with murder. It's very entertaining. But it's interestingly made by a Russian filmmaker who's under house arrest. So what it has to say about freedom of expression under restraint actually has some power. He knows what he's talking about. And a really lovely music and dance film, Le Grand Bal, which is made at a traditional dance festival in Gentine in France. Our big hesitation about showing this film is that next year our audience will all disappear to Gentine because it happens at exactly the same time as the the film festival. Mm -mm. But a wonderfully immersive trip into a really vital culture of traditional European dance and music. And I was um, hoping to say earlier on when we started talking about um, Pietra's film that the film about Alexander McQueen is one of the great films in the film festival this year. And I never really expect to hear myself saying that about a fashion film, but I think the McQueen film cuts really deep. He is a troubling and fascinating individual and the film serves his work brilliantly. The shows he did, which were are still quite confronting, really belonged in a movie, and now we get to see them on the big screen, along with a, a very thoughtful portrait of the man himself from uh, the people who knew him. I don't want to do a show feeling like you've just had Sunday lunch. I want you to feel repulsed or exhilarated. Going to the depths of one's mind, you start losing who you are, and it becomes the place that you can't get out of. That's McQueen, one of Bill Gosden's highlights of this year's New Zealand International Film Festival. The programme is released this week. The festival opens in Auckland on the 19th of July in Wellington the following week and then rolls out over the rest of the country.